Mark 14, 1 through 25. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came in with an alabaster flask of ointment, pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her, but Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and wherever you want, and you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could, and she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the, third, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house. The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Prepare there for me, or prepare there for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and they were reclining at table and eating. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to them, Say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him, for that man, if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them. He said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, John. Let me ask you, please, if you would join me in dropping the microphone. Sorry. Join me in prayer. We obviously need God's help, so let's pray and help him, ask him to help us understand this part of the word. Father, we come now and pray that you would, that you would be at work here among us. Lord, we want to believe um, 
that you are good and that you are kind and that you are merciful. And yet we confess that sometimes that's hard because the experience of our life uh, tells us otherwise. Sometimes we fall prey to the lies of the enemy. Sometimes, Father, we are hard-hearted due to sin. And so this morning, God, we ask that you would come and in a very real and personal way meet with us and help us to understand Jesus, who you are and why you have come and how we might come to know you and have our lives made new and made better. God, only the Holy Spirit, only you can do this good work among us, can enable us to believe the gospel. And so, Holy Spirit, will you please come and do that now? Will you work in our heart's faith? Maybe for the first time, maybe for the five millionth time, whether we've been Christians for five minutes or five decades. Father, we pray that you would do the same among each one of us. Help us to trust you, to trust Jesus as he offers himself to us freely in his death and resurrection. And we pray this thing in the name of, these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the Lord's Supper, um, the Last Supper, which Jesus celebrates here with his disciples, is, you know, it's one of the most famous moments in the life and ministry of Jesus. It's been made even more famous, perhaps, by the most Leonardo da Vinci's famous painting called The Last Supper. It's been depicted in movies and in literature. You know, it's well known by most people in our culture, whether or not they're followers of Jesus Christ. And it's rightly well known. It's rightly famous. It's one of the high points. It's one of the pinnacles of the Gospel of Mark. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning as we seek to understand what God is speaking to us through the scriptures. Now, we're making our way through this ancient story of Jesus's life and death and resurrection, the gospel of Mark. And this morning we meet our, uh, we meet chapter 14, the last couple of chapters of the gospel here. And we're moving into what's called the passion narrative, the passion narrative proper, the passion of Jesus. You might remember the Mel Gibson movie a few years ago called the passion of the Christ. Passion is just uh, in its original form, a Latin word meaning the suffering, the suffering of Jesus. Last week, we looked at Mark 13, and we saw that Mark 13 is a bridge chapter from Jesus' discussion with the religious leaders in the temple in Jerusalem in chapters 11 and 12 to now chapter 14, where we're just a couple of days, really a day before Jesus is arrested and sentenced to death and crucified on a cross. And so the last three chapters of Mark, 14, 15, and 16, deal with the final days of the king, the last days of Jesus. And so as we move towards Easter, where we're going to finish Mark and look at the resurrection of Jesus, we're going to look at these texts, these parts of the story, which focus primarily on Jesus's suffering. And so verses three through 11, very briefly set the stage for us. This woman we read anoints Jesus with this very expensive flask of oil. And Jesus says that she is preparing him for burial for burial, excuse me. So that signals for us that the time has come for Jesus to do what he has come to do. The time has come for Jesus to, to go to the cross. The day has almost arrived. The moment is now. And so the tension just in the narrative is it's really at its absolute height. It's at its peak here in the last days of Jesus. And so what we're going to focus on this morning is Jesus's last supper this Passover meal that he ate with his disciples in the upper room. And I want us to ask ourselves and hopefully understand at the end of the sermon why this is so important. 
And there's a number of reasons that are probably fairly obvious to you. For one, this is the institution of one of the two sacraments in the Christian church, which we're going to celebrate a little later in the service, the Lord's Supper. That's one reason why this is an important story. It's also important because, as I mentioned, this is the, one of the high points of Mark's gospel on a narrative level. This is a very important moment in the story. But most importantly, the Last Supper, Jesus sitting down at the table in the upper room with his 12 disciples, is so important because what it's doing is pointing us forward to what's going to happen to Jesus. It's pointing us forward to Jesus's impending death. Jesus is going to die. And so let me try and summarize what I want to communicate to you, what I hope the Holy Spirit communicates to each of us this morning like this. Very simply, here's the main idea. At the Last Supper, Jesus helps us understand what his death means. That's what's happening here. At the Last Supper, Jesus helps us understand what his death means. So if you're here today and you aren't sure what Jesus is all about or who Jesus was or why he came, if you're unsure of whether you want to follow him or not, if you think you know Jesus but aren't sure, this is a very um, important thing for you to listen to because Jesus is very clear here in laying out this symbolism of the Last Supper, of the Lord's Supper, about exactly why he came. So that's what we want to focus on, Jesus helping us understand what his death means. And I want to break the story down into three parts, okay? So let me lay them out for you right now. First, Jesus' death is a sacrifice to atone. Second, Jesus' death is a gift to receive And thirdly, Jesus' death is an invitation to celebrate. A sacrifice to atone, that's going to be the main point and the longest, just so you know. (laughs) Secondly, it's a gift to receive. Thirdly, it's an invitation to celebrate. Okay? So as we seek to understand the meaning of Jesus' entire story, and especially of Jesus' death, those are the three ideas, the three points. So let's start, okay? First, I want to show you through the scripture that Jesus' death is a sacrifice to atone. So let's start by understanding this. What's going on here at the Last Supper is that Jesus is celebrating with his disciples a Passover meal. You see that in the first couple of verses of chapter 14, right? It's two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then in 12 through 16, we read that Jesus gives orders to his disciples to make ready this upper room of one of his friends in Jerusalem where they can celebrate the Passover meal together. So it's all been prearranged for them to celebrate in the meal together in this room by Jesus. They all gather together to celebrate the Passover. And so Jesus' words, they, they kind of have a heightened meaning because of the, the significance of the event, that this is a Passover meal. So what does that mean? Well, the word Passover refers to an ancient celebration that the people of Israel, the Jewish people, by the time of Jesus, had already been celebrating for about a thousand years. If you're familiar with the Bible, you might know that this comes from the Old Testament, especially in the book of Exodus. The Passover meal is a commemoration of the Lord God rescuing the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. The people of Israel, the scripture tells us, had been enslaved there for centuries when God used Moses to deliver them. And he sent many plagues, ten plagues, in fact, to Egypt to attempt to get the king, the Egyptian pharaoh, to let his people go. But none of the first nine plagues had succeeded in Pharaoh loosening his grip on his slaves, on the Israelites. And so we read around Exodus chapter 12 that God 
God sends a tenth plague. And this plague is the most devastating and also the most significant because this plague is going to fall not just on the Egyptians, but upon everyone. It represents the judgment of the Lord God. It's a plague of divine justice. This final plague was that in every home in Egypt, Jewish or Egyptian, the oldest son in the home would die that evening under God's wrath. But there was, according to the scriptures, a way of escape. God told Moses that the only way your family could escape this judgment was to kill a lamb, to eat the lamb at a meal, and then to spread the blood of the lamb on the door of your home as a sign of your faith in God. And when you did that, this angel of death representing God's judgment would pass over, would pass over your house and not bring the wrath of God down through the killing of your firstborn. Tim Keller, in his commentary on Mark, writes this. In every home that night, there would be either a dead child or a dead lamb. When justice came down, either it fell on your family or you took shelter under the substitute, under the blood of the lamb. And so the story went that if you put your blood, the blood of the lamb, on your door, the judgment of God would pass over, hence the name Passover. So you could be saved through the substitutionary sacrifice of the lamb. So for a thousand years after that event, the people of Israel have been celebrating God's deliverance of them from Egypt. And that is exactly what Jesus is doing here in chapter 14. And crucially, what Jesus does is change the thousand-year-old ritual the thousand-year-old language to show his disciples and to show us today that he, that he is the fulfillment of the Passover event. That is why he came. Jesus is demonstrating here that he is the final lamb, the final lamb to be slain. He is the final substitute. He is the final sacrifice. There are a few important things in the text that make this really vivid. And we know from Jewish Jewish writings of the period that uh, there was a very distinct celebration. If you've celebrated a Passover, you might have experienced this. Uh, The leader of the celebration, which typically was the head of the household, here it's Jesus, at a certain point would take bread and he would break the bread and give it to his family. And he would say this, this is the bread of our affliction, which our fathers ate in the wilderness. Now they've been doing this for a thousand years, for centuries at this point. And when Jesus stands up at the Last Supper and breaks the bread, that is not what he says, is it? He changes the language. He changes the ritual. He says instead, this is my body. Similarly, the head of household would, throughout the meal, drink four cups of wine. That's a lot of wine, I know. Maybe just a little bit from each cup. He would take four sips, let me put it that way, four sips of wine, and each sip was very significant. And after the third cup of wine, there was a very set ritual language to commemorate the Passover event. That's what Jesus is doing here in verse 24. He takes a third cup of wine and again adds new language. He says, this is my blood, the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And then finally... What is it that's missing in this Last Supper? What do we not read anything about throughout the whole story? We don't read anything about the main course, the lamb itself, 
Mark makes no mention of it. And the reason he wants you to understand is because the lamb is not on the table. The lamb is at the table. Jesus, you see, is the lamb. That's why John in his gospel in chapter 1 says, when he looks at Jesus, the lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. That's why Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus was born this about him in Isaiah 53. The Lord has lain on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. He did not open his mouth. He was like what? Like a lamb. Like a lamb led to the slaughter. He poured out his life unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors. What Jesus is doing in this Passover feast with his disciples is showing them and showing us that his death primarily is a sacrifice to atone. He's teaching that he is the final substitute for human sin. Okay, so let's take a second and back up a little bit, okay? 30,000 foot view here. Um, I want us to understand that this really bloody and probably strange to you ritual of Passover and its subsequent celebration throughout the ages was meant to teach us something essential. If we want to understand God, if we want to understand ourselves, and if we want to understand the world, Passover is meant to teach us something essential. And here's what it is. We are all in need of atonement. We are all in need of a substitute. The scriptures teach that the reason we are all in need of atonement is because we are all, every one of us, guilty. We are all rebels against God, our maker and our king. We have turned our backs on him, the Bible says, and our experience proves. We have actually sought to usurp his power. We've sought to throw him off of the throne that is rightfully his and sit on it ourselves. Everything that we've ever done before we know Jesus is aimed towards that, towards being God ourselves. And so because God is a good and righteous king, he punishes rebellion. He is just towards rebels. And he is right and just to punish each one of us by death and by separation from him forever. That is why Passover is so significant. That's why it's so important is because it reminds us that we all need atonement because we are all rebels. Now, I realize that some of you at this point might be thinking, you know what, I just really don't buy that. You know, I don't hate God. Now, I've never been super angry at God. I don't shake my fist in the air anytime I think about religion. You know, I, I haven't really seen myself ever as an overt rebel against the king. Maybe that's where you find yourself today. Maybe you just are kind of indifferent. Maybe you just don't really think about religion or spirituality or God at all. Maybe it's just something that's sort of in the very much on your, on your back burner. You know, maybe your state, according to your own thinking, is, is one of just, you know, you're just indifferent. You're just passive rather than, you know, open hatred towards God. Now, if that's where you find yourself, I want you to understand something, okay? It's, I think it's important. And I want to try to help you understand it by way of an illustration. Uh, John Chapman, in his book, A Fresh Start, uses this illustration. And he's, here's what he says. Uh, imagine that we are both soldiers in World War I. And that we're fighting in the trenches, right? Trench warfare. And imagine that you have a single firing rifle that can fire one bullet at a time. And I have a submachine gun. Right? And imagine that the enemy charges. They come out of their trench toward us. 
And there's no doubt, right, that I'm going to fire a lot more shots than you're going to fire. And, and then suppose that we're both captured. No one is going to ask when we get captured, which one of you fired the most shots? That's going to be completely insignificant. We're both going to be treated as enemies because that is what we are. The question really is, is whose side are we on? Some of us have demonstrated our rebellion against God by the submachine gun method. I hate you, God. Some of us demonstrate our rebellion against God by the single firing rifle method. But the bottom line is that all of us are opposed to him. We're on the opposite side in the opposite trench. We are all rebels. Whether you actively hate God and know it, or you just don't think about him at all, you are not on his side. You are a rebel. You deserve his judgment. And so you need someone to take your place when the sword of justice falls. And Jesus here is saying that that is exactly why he came. God loves us so deeply that he sent Jesus, his son, to take the judgment our rebellion deserves. God loves us so deeply that he himself bears the penalty for our sin on the cross. God loves us so much that he gave away his son as a sacrifice, as the lamb, the last lamb, to take away the sin of the world. Jesus' death he means us to see is a sacrifice to atone for your rebellion and for my rebellion. Okay? Second, Jesus' death is a gift to receive. And we see this especially in verses 22, 23, 24. And this is really important if you really want to understand the grace of God, the grace of the gospel. It, again, it's worth just stepping back and taking note of the fact that, listen, Jesus chooses to symbolize the meaning of his death for sinners through a meal. You ever thought of that? He chooses to symbolize the meaning of his death through a meal. Why is that significant? It's significant, I think, for this reason. Think about it. In order to receive the nourishment, right, that food provides or that drink provides, we have to eat it. We have to digest it. We have to take it in. And look at what Jesus says, after all. He says, take. You see that verb? Take. This is my body. This is my blood of the covenant. All that, I think, is to say this. Just as we have to you know, actually and actively eat food and drink drink to be nourished, so we also have to actively take and receive Jesus' offer of rescue and pardon and forgiveness if we want to be nourished by it. We must willingly and consciously receive the gift that he offers us in his death. As a side note, real quick, that is part of the reason, really the main reason, why we have you come forward to celebrate communion. We don't have to do it that way, but we think that it's symbolic of the fact that you are coming and consciously saying, I recognize I'm a rebel. I recognize I need atonement. I recognize that Jesus has offered himself in his death in my place. I want to receive all of the benefits that come to me by faith in Jesus. Come forward. That's why we have you come to the table. It's a sign of your active faith. It's a sign of your willingness to receive the gift that he freely offers. When you're coming forward, what you're going to do in just a minute, if you're a follower of Jesus, what you're doing is you're, you're symbolizing in that movement 
You're symbolizing that you believe, that you recognize that you're a sinner in need of forgiveness, that you want the grace of forgiveness that Jesus offers through his death. You know, that's all just another way of saying that in order for Jesus to be of any benefit to you, you have to connect with him by faith. In order for Jesus' death and resurrection to mean anything in your life, really, you have to trust that these things happened for you, that Jesus has done this so that you might be pardoned, so that you might receive forgiveness. And so the question, as we read through Mark, that's being asked again and again and again, and again now is, have you done that? Right? Have you believed the gospel? You know, in San Antonio, in a, in a city like San Antonio, there are probably literally hundreds of thousands of people that have been exposed to the gospel that can even perhaps explain the gospel that might even say they like the gospel two thumbs up for Jesus, but haven't actually ever received by faith the gospel. And so you must continually be asking yourself in the sort of culture that we're surrounded by in the churchy, bible Christian-ish culture that we're in. Have you actually connected to Jesus by faith? You know, maybe you grew up with Bibles in your house. Maybe you grew up going to church and maybe you're going to, maybe you're here this morning because you think that's what I'm always done. That's what I'm supposed to do. Maybe you're here because one of your friends or family members dragged you here and you finally decided to show up. Maybe you're here just because you don't really know what else to do on Sunday mornings, but not because you have an actual relationship of your own with Jesus. You know, you should ask yourself, is that where you are? Is that where you are today? It's time to take the offer. Jesus is saying. It's time to receive his invitation for rescue. It's time to trust him. It's time to place your faith in the gospel. It's free. Just take it. Believe it. In C.S. Lewis's one of the Chronicles of Narnia books, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, I think it's number five. Shame on me for not knowing that. <clears throat> I think it's number five. Um, later in the book, um, Lucy and Edmund and Prince Caspian and some of the other heroes are looking for the seven lost lords of Narnia. And they're on board this ship called the Dawn Treader and they're sailing east and they're stopping at all these different islands on the way. And late in the book, they stop at an island called the Dark Island. And they dock the ship and get off and they find this huge stone table in the heart of the island. And they find a woman there who is the watcher of the table. And it turns out that she is the daughter of a star, which if you think that is cool, you should probably read more C.S. Lewis. If you think that's weird, you should read more C.S. Lewis either way. Um, and they find this huge table with this just amazing feast laid out on it. Food everywhere. It looks great for famished and weary world travelers, right? And at the table, there are three men with their heads down on the table, fast asleep. And the kids find out through the rings that the men are wearing that these are three of the seven lost lords that they've been searching for. And so they ask the, they ask the woman, the daughter of the star, what's the deal with these guys? Why are these men not eating and drinking what is on the table? And the woman who lives on the island uh, replies that they had arrived seven years earlier and they had sat at the table, but all they had done was argue about where to go next and about how they were going to survive. And they had never actually made use of the feast that was right in front of them. So much so that eventually they just passed out from hunger. Can you see the irony in that? At a table that's replenished every day with an amazing feast, you fall asleep because you won't eat what's right in front of you. 
That's the case with so many people in our city. It might be the case with you. There's a feast right in front of each of us today. It's offered to us as a gift. And Jesus asks you to take it. He asks you to eat. He says, take it and drink. Receive by faith the life Jesus offers you forever through his death. Jesus' death, it's a sacrifice to atone. It's a gift a gift for you to receive. And then last, okay, it's an invitation to celebrate. We see that, especially in verse 25. Look at what Jesus says there. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying this, for now, this is my last meal. You have thought that? This is Jesus' last meal alive on earth before his resurrection. But he says, one day I will be at another feast. It's the feast of the kingdom of God. Another book in the Bible, the book of Revelation, in chapter 19, calls this feast the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's the celebration feast. It's the victory feast at the end of the age, after Jesus returns and makes all things new. After Jesus forges out of the brokenness of this world a new heavens, and a new earth. There will be all those who have trusted in him seated at the table in beauty and in glory and in radiance with perfect bodies, perfect souls, no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow. And there we will feast again with the lamb. There we will enjoy the eternal joys and benefits of life in Jesus with Jesus. After death, Jesus will again live, he's saying, and enjoy his eternal rest. And in this meal, he's telling us that after our suffering is over, after our deaths, we will live again and enjoy eternal rest because of our union with him by faith. So the supper is a reminder, not just of what Jesus has done, but also an anticipation of what Jesus will do with us forever at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a foretaste, you see, of the final day. It's a glimmer of the hope that awaits us in heaven. And so every time we celebrate the supper, which we're going to do in just a minute, we are to look forward to the day when we will dwell with God, when he will be with us in the kingdom that will last forever. Every time we celebrate the supper, we are reminding ourselves of the hope and the joy of the destiny that is before us. You see, Jesus is saying here that his death, this final Passover, is what will make this eternal future possible for those who trust in him. Man, that's awesome. Let's just, okay, just stop and think. Reflect on that. I mean, what can we say to this? Can we be filled with the hope of the gospel this morning? Can we? I mean, the psalmist says weeping may last for the night, but joy, joy comes in the morning. Listen, the death of Jesus, this is what he wants you to hear today. The death of Jesus assures us of an eternal hope that's never going to perish or spoil, or fade away. And each time we celebrate what Jesus instituted in that last supper, each time we celebrate communion, what Jesus opens up here, we get a, we get a foretaste of that. We're reminded. We're reminded that the sorrows in our life are temporary. 
that the sorrows in our life have a purpose, that the sorrows in our life will one day be distant memories as we dwell in God and with God forever in perfect peace and happiness. What's making you sorrowful today? What is it that's causing you to lose hope? What sadnesses do you have? Are you tired and weary? Are you sick? You don't know how to get better? Are you frustrated by the bent nature of so many of your close relationships? Are you tired of dealing with your own guilt issues and shame issues and sin issues and addiction issues? Are you burdened just, you know, beyond what you thought was possible maybe a few years ago? Heck, even a few weeks ago. Are you overcome with the horrors and the pains of this world? Listen, Jesus invites you to come to the table. Come to the table of Jesus Christ and remember and believe that because Christ has died for this world to be renewed, we will all one day through faith in him dwell in harmony and joy and peace. The supper you see is intended to give you and to give me hope, a real hope, a certain hope. Not like I hope the Cowboys win the Super Bowl next year. That is by no means a certain hope, a hope that is sure, a hope that is rock Solid. The hope that one day we, along with our brothers and sisters of every tribe and tongue and language and nation and color, will fully comprehend with all the saints the breadth and the height and the depth and the length of the love of God in Jesus Christ, which surpasses knowledge. That is what awaits us. We will be filled with all the fullness of God. We will sit down at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and lift up a song of praise to the glory of God and to the Lamb. The last chapter of the Bible says, Revelation chapter 22, the spirit and the bride say, come. And to the one who hears, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. That is what the table signifies for you. That's what the death of Jesus opens for you for free. Receive it. Believe it hope in it. Let's pray.